Hello and welcome to the IntraFish podcast. We are back. It's our first podcast of the year. We apologize to all our listeners out there that have been asking why we haven't gone out and done uh, a fresh one, but it has been incredibly busy to start off the new year as it has been for everybody else. Uh, and so we have just had our hands full with uh, with coverage. So there's my excuse. I am Drew Cherry, uh, Editor-in-Chief with IntraFish, and I am here today with Executive Editor John Fiorillo. How are you today, John? Ah, very good, thank you. So, uh, too much to talk about for a single podcast, but, um, but we decided that we would, would focus on, uh, on, on a couple of the biggest issues of the week, and um, they've been running on longer than just, uh, than just the, the, the past week. Um, but, but the biggest one, uh, is obviously, and I hate to say it, we didn't leave it behind in 2020, but that's COVID. Um, right now it is the start of the Alaska Pollock A season, the most important, uh, important season for, um, uh, certainly for groundfish, uh, harvesters here in the Pacific Northwest and arguably the most important, uh, season uh, for the entire whitefish sector, given how important Alaska pollock is as a raw material. So um, both uh, in the United States and in Russia, the A season has begun. So many moving parts right now um, that are impacting how the season uh, will go. Um, the biggest one being uh, outbreaks at several of the major facilities uh, most recently this week uh, at uh, Trident's uh, Akutan facility, um, there was a positive test around uh, January 16th or 17th, uh, and then um, subsequent testing has turned up more cases to uh, the point that on Thursday, January 28th, it was uh, it was found that forty percent, uh, to be specific, thirty seven percent, two hundred and sixty six workers um, were COVID positive uh, there in Akatan. So that plant is now uh, closed uh, while they go through the quarantine process. Um, Trident moved about a hundred employees to Anchorage, which is about seven hundred fifty miles northeast of Akatan. Akatan is very very remote. Um, uh, leaving, uh, the rest of the, the, the crew there, um, or rather the workers to, um, go through their quarantine process. Some of them are COVID positive, um, but are comfortable enough staying down there. Um, and, uh, and, and then to, to add to the, to the, um, the challenges for Trident, they also found a case on the catcher processor, the Island Enterprise, that's a roughly 300 foot. Uh, catch a processor vessel, so that catches Alaska Pollock, processes it on board into product forms. Um, so maybe we can just start there, John, before we talk about the other factories uh, that have been impacted there in the Unalaska Dutch Harbor region. But um, we've done some reporting on this. We've done some, uh, you know, done some uh, digging around, and we have kind of our own knowledge base of of that area. But um, what, what does this tell us heading into the A season? What are your thoughts? There, there was a statement in uh, Trident's, or there was a, a sentence in Trident's statement that they were surprised by, <clears throat> by the outbreak. And I think that's what everybody kind of feels. Uh, it, it just seems surprising to me that this 
this was happening. And maybe it shouldn't because COVID is still running rampant everywhere. But it had seemed like um, companies in in the Pollock world especially had kind of gotten things under control and had systems that were working. And, and certainly Trident does and all the others do. They have, you know, they some of the factory trawler companies, I understand, even have medical doctors on staff, you know, or at least one. So um, that's kind of what the surprise was to me that, wow, here it is. It's so out of hand all of a sudden. I mean, you'll remember earlier in 2020 when the fact when this stuff started ripping through the Pollock factory trawler fleet. So in this case, now it's the land-based uh, processors that are feeling it. But yeah, it just it came on really fast, and I, I guess you know it makes sense given that the all the fishermen and uh, processing workers, you know, are are busy right now with the season. So if it's going to spread, it's going to spread now. But yeah, I just I thought that better systems were in place to to thwart this. But you know, it's it's a tough thing to fight, regardless. So yeah, I, I think what what's really concerning the industry right now uh, is that Trident was considered to be. Um, kind of the, the gold standard in the quarantining process of, uh, you know, of, of getting workers up there and keeping workers um, from passing on infections to others and uh, keeping workers safe, et cetera, et cetera. So that just tells you how tricky this disease is. Um, you know, there it's been, um, it was discovered on a, a couple of groundfish vessels uh, in December um, an O'Hara vessel and a United States seafood uh, vessel, two, um, two catcher uh, vessels up there. So it can quite easily spread through uh, a vessel very, very quickly. And if you'll recall, um, kind of the first big uh, hit to the Alaska industry actually was American seafoods back in, uh, in the spring of 2020. Um, and that got on, I think, two of the vessels. Um, but um, don't don't hold me to that. I need to double check that. But I believe it got onto two of the vessels. Um, so it, it is once it gets into sort of a the closed system, so to speak, uh, it seems like it just goes like wildfire. And uh, and I think the fact that there's um, that many workers that have uh, that have turned out to be COVID positive. This is a big, potentially big, big problem for the Alaska Pollock sector. Now, the catcher processors uh, are operating as normal, as we understand, uh, with the exception of the Island Enterprise. Um, Trident has two other catcher processors. I believe one is, uh, is uh, already up in Alaska, um, and I think one's still down in Tacoma. Um, so, so it's not, um, the Island enterprise is not, um, kind of the end of the world for them to be out for two weeks of quarantining. Um, but, but what it does, uh, what it does, uh, mean is that every day that, uh, that they're not processing in, in Akatan, it just pushes back the season and it pushes back things like row, for example, which, um, Pollock Row is really, really valuable. 
uh, in Japan and about $150 million uh, in value for Alaska Pollock row expert exports each year, uh, primarily to Japan. And that season uh, for Roe, when they're at kind of the, the, the perfect area for that market, um, that window's pretty slim. And so around mid-February-ish, it's not the same quality. The quality can degrade very quickly. Um, and, uh, and I've been to uh, a couple of the Alaska Pollock row auctions in Seattle, and believe me, um, I don't know how they're going to do it over video conference. They've got plenty of Japanese um, companies, obviously, and Japanese executives here in uh, here in Seattle. But um, but at any rate, that that um, that inspection process is uh, intense. So the 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 grading of that row, um, you're not going to sneak any any subpar row past any of the uh, any of the buyers. Um, so that alone can be a big hit to the to the margins for these uh for these vessels um yeah now now john um we also have a couple of other plants down in that area that have been uh that have been hit so tell us about those also um maruha's owned alieska seafood uh plant and nippon suisan's unisi uh plant also in that region um have had their own outbreaks. So, um, you know, that's a significant amount of processing power that's been um, compromised by this. And and the other thing that I've been thinking about is just the cost. You talked a few minutes ago about the margins. And um, although Pollock, we'll, I'll put Roe aside for a second, Pollock prices in general have been strong um, for a while now. So the margins uh, should be good, but when you la- uh, when you put on all these extra costs, flying crew back and forth, um, lot obviously there's a lot of medical professionals that have to be hired to handle this, all the testing kits, on and on and on and on. These costs are really mounting, and um, and they are there's no way they're not taking a, a pretty significant bite out of margins for for these companies yeah and it, it's important to think about the uh, as i mentioned earlier the importance of alaska pollock in the supply chain too um and this has an effect into serini prices it has a, a an impact into uh, block and fish finger prices. I mean, we're not at a crisis level by any means right now, but it's just, you know, it, there's reason to be nervous and the industry is nervous. Um, I, I think right now the big focus is on trying to figure out how to, to keep this from happening at other facilities. Um, and it's a little bit of, it's a little bit of wait and see, um, because, um, you know, it, it once these as these quarantines take place, they have to do testing after quarantines uh, to make sure that there aren't continued infections. And um, you know, it, it's there's still processing happening. The uh, Icicle Seafoods Northern Victor uh, processing vessel is permanently docked uh, in Alaska. Uh, it's processing, um, and uh, and so there there are options. Uh, Westward has another processing facility down there as well, and uh, and and they do feel pretty confident 
that the Unice and uh, Alieska plants will um, will will open up soon. Um, that that those outbreaks were uh, a bit more um, a bit smaller, a bit more contained. But we don't know that, right? I mean, that's that's just their best guess uh, on the management side. And I mean, just a week ago, Trident was in a situation of having one or two, uh, and now um, you know, close to close to three hundred, and um, and a, and a really significant um, issue for for the Akatan facility. Yeah, and remote. I mean, these are. I mean, people who are familiar with Alaska know this, but those who aren't. <laughs> these are rem- the most remote areas, some of the most remote in Alaska. And, you know, we're not just going to fire up uh, the emergency room and, and solve things here. This is, this is a very big challenge. And, you know, the other thing that I was thinking about was, it co- ironically, it comes at a time of probably some of the highest sales and consumption of Pollock products, at least in the U.S. And I, I think parts of Europe as well. I mean, fish, you know, with COVID and the the buying of frozen food uh, more by consumers I and mean, fish fingers. I, I, personally, I see this when I go to the grocery store every week. I see the the freezer case with the fish fingers are pretty picked over. And, and you know, I go every Saturday morning, I do the grocery shopping and I run and uh, in the same vein, I buy a lot of surimi. The Serimi rack is normally um, full all the time, but it hasn't been in a long time. It's been picked over pretty well. So, um, you know, it's it's just ironic, I guess, that their shining moment is, uh, is being, uh, you know, kind of obscured by some real production challenges. Yeah, uh, it's absolutely, and and it's the the market for um, value whitefish is something that you know the the genuine Alaska Pollock producers. It's the association representing Pollock, uh, the U.S. Pollock industry. You know they've really seen some big gains and big interest in Pollock. So there's you know th- there's a lot of good things happening in the Pollock sector that will continue to move uh, move progress forward. Um, but as of now, um, you know, the inter- industry is really on, on tenderhooks while they're figuring this all out. Um, meanwhile, uh, on the other side of the ocean, Russia has started its uh, A season as well. Um, not as much volume in their A season. Uh, it is kind of uh, reversed a bit, so they don't um, harvest as, as, uh, as much in the A season as the Americans do. Um, but they've got their own set of problems. Um, Russia primarily, although it's changing, primarily catches headed and gutted fish, uh, or produces headed and gutted fish, rather, and sends that to China for reprocessing. So it's frozen, uh, headed and gutted. It's shipped over to China. It's thawed. It's uh, processed into fillet blocks, and that's what they call double frozen or twice frozen. Um so that's been going on for a long, long time. Russia is making uh, an effort to move toward uh, other uh, other value-added products. But uh, as of now, the Chinese uh, processing sort of system uh, remains what, uh, what, what, the, what the Russian industry um, relies on. So it's been quite problematic that um, the main ports uh, in China for Russia, traditionally, of Qingdao and Dalian, have been closed to Russian vessels, um, largely closed to Russian vessels. 
um, because of COVID-19 um, COVID concerns. So some of that is uh, because of quarantine requirements. Some of it was there were reports that some of the packaging of Russian uh, whitefish had uh, traces of COVID-19. Um, it's, uh, it's been a, a, a bit of a mess. So it's, it's a moving target. It's hard to know exactly where that process is. We, uh, we have a reporter in Russia, uh, who keeps track of it. And so he's, he's, uh, kind of right on top of it, but it's, uh, as usual with Chinese health issues, uh, and Chinese health authorities, it's always hard to know exactly what's behind it, exactly when things will, uh, change, um, and certainly China has, um, has, has, uh, done, done a lot of similar, uh, things regarding COVID, uh, with other sectors as well, such as Ecuador and such as, you know, the Norwegian and Chilean salmon industries. So, um, yeah, just one more, one more X factor in the, in the season. Uh, another one that is happening as well is the, um, potential MSC certification, Marine Stewardship Council certification, of a big part of the Russian uh, pollock fishery. So uh, traditionally, for a long time, um, the Alaska pollock industry had Marine Stewardship Council certification, which gave it real access into European markets in particular that really, really rely and really require um, MSC certification for their product. Uh, and it's been a disadvantage for Russia in the market for a long time. Uh, they were able to get certification for the Sea of Okhotsk, the, the largest portion of its uh, fishery in, uh, in uh, 2013, I believe. And, but until that time, they have not had other portions of the fishery certified. So they re-entered into that process for a region called the Western Bering Sea region, um, and that could bring a significant amount more uh, MSC certified Pollock onto the market, um, which, uh, which will be very positive for buyers of MSC uh, product because it'll be, uh, there'll be more volume. Um, but it's one more complicating factor for Americans uh, and, and, uh, and what they have to contend with as the year begins. Yeah, because it, it could, you know, it can affect the price premium they've been seeing um, for MSC product. And it, as you mentioned earlier, it could could impact uh, markets that have opened up to um, MSC certified Pollock that now the Russian uh, the Russians may want to get a piece of as well if they don't have it already. And uh, again, <laughs> I'm I'm loving irony right now, but the irony of all this is back way back in the time machine when the U.S. was uh, being approached by the MSC to certify the Pollock fishery, and you know they, at first there was a big fight. Um, there was you know there was a very clear feeling on on the U.S. side that no MSC label was going to bring a price premium, nor was it really going to open up significant markets. And, you know, 20 some odd years later, or whatever it is, 15, um, we see that's not the case at all, that that, that label has uh, some power to it and enough power that, you know, Russia wants to get a bigger piece of, piece of that market. So, you know, things come, things go around and come around or whatever the phrase might be. But, uh, I just, I just was thinking of that, about that, uh, yesterday when I read one of our articles on this. So 
Well, that's uh, you know, that's the pol- that's what makes the Pollock sector so exciting. It's just all these all these interesting factors at play. Uh, and and we'll we'll see we'll see how things uh, go for the remainder of this year. We'll see how long these uh, this COVID outbreak uh, goes. What Trident does to uh, to mitigate it there in Akatan. Um, so so it's it's a moving target, uh, like I said, and it's going to be um, kind of you know a, a wait and see situation um, over the next couple of days, um, to see how the, how the, the Pollock sector fares. But as I said, it's going to have a major impact on the global whitefish sector. Uh, if there, if there are any major hiccups, if the, if this goes on too long, um, and then the factors that we just discussed, you know, also, so there's just a lot happening in Pollock, but like you said, underlying all this is real demand for frozen fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, real booming domestic markets for Alaska Pollock, um, which it's been really working hard on and doing uh, doing a good job developing. Um, but you know, again, it's that supply side. It's it's wild fisheries. It's it's what you're what you're going to have to contend with if you're uh, if you're in wild fisheries. So um, <laughs> I don't know how they do it. Okay, so um, now a- another big bit of news uh, that happened actually yesterday. Um, more unfortunate news, um, but something that that uh, we do need to talk about um, was uh, an attack on a Chilean salmon smolt hatchery uh, near Temuco, Chile, um, which is kind of it's south, quite a bit south of Santiago, uh, Chile. Um, it is a facility that is owned by Cermat Group, um, but leased out to Salmones Yadran. And, um, you know, we've, we've kind of been, we're still a bit in breaking news uh, reporting on it right now. Um, but, but here's what we know. Um, what we know is that around Thursday, uh, around 1 p.m., uh, so that was January 28th, um, that a group of armed attackers approached the facility. They burned down buildings. Uh, they burned down a truck uh, and told workers there that any attempts to, uh, to try to put out the blaze um, would result in, in them potentially being shot. So just a horrifying situation for <laughs> to... to to be faced with. So, um, some brave, some brave, brave workers there. Um, one did try to put out the blaze. We haven't confirmed this, but, um, reportedly, uh, he did try to put out the blaze or did try to fight it a bit. And there was a gunshot. Nobody was hurt, but, um, you know, I think it was just sort of, um, you know, again, a, a, a tactic to, to terrorize. Um, and, and so in the aftermath now, it's not quite clear what the damage was or what the injuries, uh, what the injuries were. Um, but, but, you know, absolutely terrifying for the people there and for Cermak and, uh, Yadran and the rest of the companies operating in Chile. Um, this is something where I I think they've finally said, okay, what are we, what are we going to do to address this, to really address this? So next week there will be a, a meeting, um, I think to, to put a bit more pressure on authorities about this. Um, now it's unclear, um, who conducted the attack. 
Um, now there was a note left there that said it was the um, a group called Liberación Nacional Mapuche. Now uh, Mapuche is the uh, one of the native Chilean groups. There makes up about twelve percent of the Chilean population, um, and there has been a movement. Um, quite a long movement, as you can guess, going back to the 16th century um, of, of uh, groups there looking for uh, fighting for their, for their rights. These are indigenous groups, and just like indigenous groups all over the world, um, a lot of their territorial land has been pushed into primarily by extraction industries. Um, you know, the salmon farming sector doesn't really fall into that area um, of what uh, the groups are opposed to. Um, primarily, it has been uh, forestry and, and other uh, and mining and things like that. But, you know, it is, a, it is an industry. It is operated and owned by major companies, either in Chile or in Japan or in Norway. Um, so, so there's certainly among Mapuche leaders and activists, um, there, there's a, a drive to get more uh, sovereignty over their lands. Um, so it, it is it is an issue, but I, I want to just very much caution that there's no confirmation that um, that the Mapuche were uh, behind the attack. Um, and many of the Mapuche leaders and uh, Mapuche um, people that are in government positions have said, and, and activists as well, have said, this is, has nothing to do with us. Um, and that, um, you know, there's, there's other groups that are kind of inciting, uh, inciting this or using the groups for, for cover for, um, illicit activities like drugs or things like that. So, um, but it's divided the, the country in a big, big way. Um, and, and it's something where there have, there has been quite a few attacks and there will probably be more, um, if, uh, if there's not some progress um, happening here. But yeah, really unfortunate and, uh, and really, uh, like I said, terrifying for the workers. And, and we're trying to get a better sense of what the next steps are for the, for the industry. These are complicated issues, uh, not only in Chile, but uh, in, in so many countries where indigenous groups are struggling to you know, assert themselves and, and maybe achieve some rights or their rights that have been taken for so long. I, I was talking to John Evans, our reporter, who wrote the Chile uh, story uh, you're referring to, Drew, and I was just <clears throat> kind of uh, thinking through this a little bit. And if you look at the way indigenous groups um, interact with the seafood industry, it's kind of interesting. For example, the the groups in Alaska have steadily grown their power uh, in seafood and today are probably the most powerful they've ever been in the sector. You can see Chile, it, it's confrontational, although I, I don't think it's directly uh, targeted at uh, the salmon farming companies, but they're caught in the middle of this. You look at Washington State, for example, uh, where I live, and it's it's always been adversarial between indigenous groups and seafood, uh, whether it's a wild harvest or whatever, and it continues to be that way. You go to <laughs> you go to Western Canada. I guess we don't really have to talk about 
how adversarial that has been traditionally and continues to be to a large degree. You go over to Eastern Canada, and it's completely opposite in, in many cases. I and mean, we see that with Clearwater, which, you know, recently was bought by, uh, you know, uh, 50% of it anyways, by indigenous group uh, First Nations there. So it's just really interesting to me how it varies. But um, yeah, the Chilean thing, I mean, I guess my heart goes out to these people because a lot of people lost their jobs, you know, and companies obviously suffered as well but it's a big issue and like you said i guess it will continue in chile until you know some sort of efforts made to reconcile this um at a national level but yeah it's it was it's not pleasant to see obviously well and we're in an interesting uh an interesting uh crossroads here as well COVID has uh, obviously uh, made our lives all a lot smaller, if you, if you want to think about it in that way. Um, a lot, everyone's thinking more about uh, their own backyard, thinking more local. Um, and I think there is a, a, there is a move toward, um, toward a bit more equity. Um, we, you look at Black Lives Matter, you look at some of these... Uh, other other movements and you do see that there is um there is some progress in addressing some of those issues or i should say at least those issues are being made more aware and i would say more people are becoming sympathetic to the ideas of uh you know of of um of really um either restitution or or giving more uh, more rights over to indigenous people and more sovereignty to their to their land. So, um, as you said, BC is extremely complicated. Um, I I think the challenge too for for industry um, is how then are they going to partner with these groups? Um, how then are they going to work cooperatively? The seafood industry has a really unique position here um, uh, in, uh, in contrast to other extraction, extraction industries. So think about this. You know, when you look at, for example, Bristol Bay and the salmon fishery there, yes, there's major companies that operate uh, processing uh, facilities there um, that have no native ownership whatsoever. Um, however, you do have uh, some uh, some ownership uh, by um, you know by by uh, regional uh, uh, groups like community development quota groups. Um, you have Bristol Bay Economic Development Corporation that owns um, <clears throat> half of what is now OBI Seafoods with Cook. Um, and there's been in the past the native corporations have owned uh, have owned some of the facilities up there as well. Um, but more importantly, you have uh, what you could essentially call independent proprietors that are the suppliers, so individual fishermen and their families. Um, and, and there's uh, many of the, of the natives in Alaska, in, in the Bristol Bay region at least, um, are fishermen. And so there is this kind of, um, there's this kind of nexus that can happen with the fishing industry where Coastal jobs can really be supported by the industry, or as you said, John, 
um, groups that have the wherewithal and the um, and the financial backing can actually own either outright own companies or take partial ownership. Um, probably the Clearwater deal um, and some of the Alaska deals that have been struck over the over the years. It probably serves as a good model for how these things are going to work going forward if, uh, if cooperation with First Nations or Native Alaskans uh, is to be achieved. Um, it's not something that's so simple in other countries, of course. Um, I don't know enough about the Mapuche people in Chile or what their rights are or if there's any um, type of, of, uh, groups that have any, um, you know, any financial restitution from, uh, for, from their lands or anything, anything like that. Um, so I'm not going to speak on it at all, but, uh, but I, I will say that, um, the industry is going to need to take a look at this and need to figure out how they're going to, uh, how they're going to go moving forward. Um, especially the focus on, um, environmental and and uh, and uh, social aspects of of companies, and that being so important to investors and so important to shareholders, um, this is going to be a big deal, and it's going to get bigger and bigger. So um, the good thing is, I do think the seafood industry is well placed to find partnerships and to reach out and do this in uh, in a good way. Maybe not everywhere, maybe not to the extent that um, that they might hope. But um, but to put a positive spin on it, I, I, I think there's more potential and, and more promise than there is in, in other extraction industries um, and other other food producing industries. Yeah. And the wild fish harvest harvesting side uh, has has a unique advantage in all this. And in, in the fact that there's ownership possibilities, not just of the companies and boats, but actual quota ownership. And I think that takes takes uh the indigenous uh groups to a new level you you see that with the clearwater deal you see that in some deals in alaska um that are more whitefish focused so um you know owning quota is is significant i mean it it is it is slowly becoming the holy grail of of all wild fish harvesting value you know for companies so um, yeah, I think that the developments in Eastern Canada and Alaska probably, to me, offer a model or at least the, the best model at this point going forward in the sense that, yeah, you want to own some of the quota. You want to own some of the, the fish. Fully agree. I think, like you said, it's a different situation, much different situation on the uh, on the aquaculture side, on the salmon farming side. Mm-hmm. For a range of reasons, um, for one, you are on a on a you're anchored to a seabed, um, at least as of now. If you're if you're net pen, um, and you are um, y- you know you are then on potentially on uh, on these native territories, so it becomes far more complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in addition, um, you know you have the majority of the major salmon farming companies if you trace them back, uh, uh, are publicly held. Um, obviously, the big ones are, are listed in uh, Oslo, and I'm thinking Surmac with Mitsubishi um, as an owner. So you, you have an incredible amount of scrutiny from shareholders. 
there will be more activist shareholders that are, are going to push people on these issues. Um, and, and Norway in particular, where, uh, where Movie and, uh, and Grig uh, are based, um, two of the, the companies here in, um, in British Columbia, or up north in British Columbia, um, have operations. And Cermak, which is also based in Norway, they're going to really feel the pressure because the ESG issues in Norway and the, the commitments to the UN Sustainable Development Goals it's a big deal in, in Norway, probably more than anywhere else. Norway likes to be ahead of the curve on these issues. They like to play a leadership role on sustainability um, and social issues. And so, you know, this, this is going to, to, to hit onto uh, companies' radars. Um, and, and it's going to be interesting to see how they handle it. But again, there, there will be a need to find some uh, some roadmaps there, um, you know, partnerships, for example, may be part of it. Uh, forgot to mention that Cook does have a couple small partnerships, one in Washington State and one with the First Nations group in, um, I think it's Eastern Canada. Um, you know, and, and that may be, uh, you know, that may be a part of, 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 uh, of how things need to go, um, maybe in Chile as well. Um, of course, movie and Cermak and Grieg all have, uh, partnerships as well with, with, uh, uh, some first nations groups too. So anyway, it's, it's complicated, like you said, John, uh, and certainly, um, smarter people than me, um, are, are gonna, uh, be able to, to figure this out and weigh in more, um, for our readers. So we, we are already, uh, working on, on getting a better understanding of these issues as we speak. Our team is, is, uh, diligently working away. Um, well, let's, let's wrap up the podcast there, but a couple quick things. Uh, we just, uh, finished our, uh, 2021 seafood outlook report, uh, selling seafood in, uh, a time of COVID. Uh, John, you want to tell us a little bit about that? You've worked a lot on that. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's been, um, pretty, pretty fascinating to hear what, uh, what the analysts and industry and everyone else has 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 told you and uh, and our business intelligence analyst Kim Tran uh, during during this uh, research process. Yeah, um, we're really proud of the report. It, it covers the arc uh, from the beginning of the first signs of COVID, and when we went back and and looked, uh, you know, we were reporting on you know something's wrong type of stuff January and February. Nobody knew what it was quite then, but. Um, we, we'll take you back to the very beginnings uh, of our reporting on it, and they're probably the beginnings of any seafood uh, reporting on it. Anyways, it takes you uh, from the beginning of that across the entire arc until where we are today and what we've learned. But most importantly, I think the report uh, provides um, kind of a blueprint for where the seafood industry will be living in the post-COVID um, era, which <laughs> we all hope is just around the corner somehow, some way. But that we learned a lot. Uh, obviously, the the, um, the the obvious one of you know the shutdown of food service, the explosion of retail. But within those two mega trends, uh, the report really explores what that means and, and where things likely will be going. You guys work really hard on it. So, um, yeah, absolutely. You can find more info on intrafish.com. 
Also, uh, coming up in about a month, February 23rd, is our Sustainable Shrimp uh, Digital Event. Uh, and we are going to be bringing together experts in the sector to give, uh, to give attendees a view on where the industry is going in 2021, uh, including production analyses, uh, looking at the markets. Um, uh, our keynote uh, speaker is going to be uh, Gorian Nikolic from uh, Rabobank, uh, who's a fantastic uh, source of information on the sector. So, um, so we're looking very forward to hearing what he has to say. And uh, really excited about this. On Monday, uh, we are releasing a new feature on Interfish.com for subscribers. So non-subscribers, sorry. Uh, Subscriber-only feature, uh, Interfish News Alerts. This is super cool. We've been working on it for a long time. Essentially, uh, you can go to the stories. You will uh, be given the opportunity to, uh, to set up alerts on your favorite topics or... Uh, your uh, favorite companies, your favorite journalists, if you're following uh, specific journalists. Um, and then as soon as topics are uh, published on that, uh, or as soon as stories are published on that topic, you'll get an alert right into your inbox. So you can set that for immediate. If you want uh, a notification every time that a story on movie is published, you can get that right in your inbox right away as soon as we hit publish. Uh, or you can get it daily, or you can get it weekly. You can set up the uh, the frequency of, of those alerts, but um, it's fantastic. We uh, soft launched the beta version last week, and we've been uh, testing, testing, testing secretly in the background while our, our readers have been going on about their days. Uh, but we're ready to roll it out. So uh, look forward to that next week. Uh, you'll see the, the little bell up in the right-hand uh, corner of your, uh, your Intrafish page. And then you'll also see on our front page uh, an area where you can set up alerts. And then remember, it, within the stories, you'll also be able to, um, to select topics there. So try it out. You're going to love it. Uh, we're excited about it. And, uh, and it's just one more way that, um, that you get to customize uh, the news that you get from, from us. There's a lot of news out there, and we work really hard to make sure that we're getting you news that matters uh, and helping you cut through the noise and, and really analyze this sector. Again, we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>